talking about your trip on Sunday. I said, well, you know, my trip really isn't a sermon. Um, I'm talking about Joshua. She said, oh. So uh, Friday afternoon, late, I text our staff and I say, you know, I, I'm talking about Joshua, but I'm, I'm hearing about uh, this. And, and uh, they said, oh, no, you should talk about your trip. And I said, oh. So next Sunday, there's a great sermon on Joshua. I'd, I'd love for you to come back and uh, be a part of that. That's one of the reasons we're not... You, normally on the second Sunday, we have communion together. That sermon was kind of tied into communion, and so we're pushing that uh, till next week. As So apparently, I'm going to talk about something else. So yesterday, I uh, sat down and began to think about what to talk about. And, and it's not really a sermon this morning, so if you've come for that, you'll probably be disappointed. But but it's most definitely a an extension of the ministry of our church. Some of you uh, have participated, and some of you know a bit of my story uh, regarding Honduras, and some of you don't. So let me just give you a quick reminder. My dad started going to Honduras when he was probably, uh, when I was probably 11 or 12. I don't know how old he was, but I was probably 11 or 12 years old. And God laid it on his heart that it was a place that was in need. One of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere was growing for Christ like crazy, was growing in the Church of the Nazarene like crazy. But there weren't enough buildings and there weren't enough pastors Someone had to build buildings, and so my dad, among others, answered that call. It was eighth grade when he took me for the first time, and I will tell you, it changed the trajectory of my life. We built a church. We participated in uh, the $10,000 price tag for the building. I still remember that. We, we didn't leave the country until we had our first service in that building, and, and I remember riding in the back of a pickup truck, which is which is still allowed uh, in, in third world countries. And, uh, and saying to my dad, as we were riding in the back of a pickup truck, we came into a village that was actually built on top of um, the city dump. And the people that were living there were living in refrigerator boxes um, of cardboard and other cardboard and tin. And I remember saying to my dad and asking the question, what will they do when it rains. And he said, I guess they'll look for another box. He said, that's why we're here, son. And then he said something I've never forgotten. To whom much is given, much is required. As an eighth grader, that stayed with me. As an 8th grader, I was even able to recognize that the poorest people I knew back home, the poorest people I knew back home were wealthy compared to the people that I had been with. My dad went every year that I was in high school and beyond, and, and he would, every year he would either take my mom or me or my brother. Um, we could only afford to take two at a time because uh, we were also helping to pay for the buildings. And, uh, and we went in February and so that meant all winter long, we lived on turkey soup from Thanksgiving that we stretched and stretched and stretched the budget. We didn't take family vacations at all. Vacation time and vacation finances were invested in church growth in Honduras. But I will tell you that even with that great investment, it never took away from my parents faithfully tithing and serving at their local church in Spokane. 
well, fast forward to about 10 years ago, and our, our church here began to be involved in Honduras, and we, we started helping sponsor and start a school. The school started with 29 kids. We took teams there to help build the school. Today, there are over 300 students in that school. Giving kids a chance to break out of the poverty and violence and have an education that will allow them to get a job and also be formed in a Christ-like way. We also discovered that education among pastors, some with only third grade educations, theological education was lacking, lacking among pastors in training. And so the the vision was to to build strategically placed ministry centers in which pastors and leaders could come together, where one teacher could gather a whole group of people and begin to teach. I taught in the first center in Tegucigalpa. Fifty people took buses up to ten hours to come to take a course. Then our church went and helped build a second teaching center in San Pedro Sula. And I've continued to go and try to teach. Some of you know that twice my family spent uh, a month, uh, both times, during previous sabbaticals there. The church continued to grow all over the country, but, but there was one place in the country that hadn't had much investment. It's the northeast corner of the country. You can see on the map there. And there was only one Nazarene church up in that corner. They were so busy planting other churches, building other churches, doing other things, and this was a long way to go. There was only one church that was up there. In fact, my dad helped build it almost 30 years ago now. They hadn't had much help. But the thought was that if we were to put a study center there, maybe that could serve as a launching pad to plant new churches. And then the day after Thanksgiving in 2012, my dad died from a blood clot after a knee replacement surgery. The Honduran people, out of gratitude for the work of my dad, wanted to name this study center, if it ever got built, after him. And so our church sent two teams. Other churches caught the vision, including my parents' home church, and and the George Wilkes Memorial Teaching Center was born. Some of you were there or seen pictures when it was just a foundation in the ground. But here's a video I took of the outside of the compound just last week. Well, here we are at the teaching center, and uh, the last time our team flattened all this so that they could have grass on it, and there's the teaching center, and into the church, and then the new soccer field here. Last time we were here, our Sandpoint team spread all the dirt and uh, made that flat, and now they're playing soccer on it. So we, here we are another day in, in La Ceiba. It's amazing to see the difference that's happened just in the last few years. And even more amazing to think that out of this center, six churches have now been planted. 25 years, church by itself. Now six more, seven churches in this northeast corner of the country. Their pastors are being educated And more pastors are being called to the ministry and being prepared. And new mission sites are being set up that one day will also be churches. I've been trying to go about once a year to invest in these seven churches and their leadership and their future. Although each time I go, I am quick to say that their brothers and sisters in Sandpoint, Idaho, USA are praying for them. And the only reason I can be here is because of them. So I want to share with you, since so many people asked this week, um, some of what we did over the last couple of weeks, but, but I think it would also help to understand what the, uh, 
what's taking place right now and uh, what folks are living with. Because the question that I've received more than any since I've been back like four days is we've read a lot about Honduras in the news. What's taking place in this whole caravan thing? Would it surprise you to learn that the media does not give you the full story? I mean, is that a surprise to anybody here? Besides not telling the whole story, the media puts everyone in one category or another. Depending on what station you listen to, either this group is an invading force or it is a group that is seeking asylum. And it's way more complicated than that. Honduras has long been a major player in narcotics. It's a huge industry, and especially in the northern part of the country where we've been working. Economically, people have relied on work that has uh, stemmed from the drug trade, even though they might not recognize that's where it's come from. It's nothing to see big malls in large cities with thousands of people in them and maybe just a handful of people carrying a bag. It's nothing to see these huge businesses of hardware stores and grocery stores and, and, and inventory and, and things, and, and nothing ever gets purchased because the drug folks and the drug lords and the cartel own these businesses, and they really don't care whether anything sells or not. They use the business to take dirty money and turn it into clean money. But in the meantime, they are employing thousands of people. You go to the hardware store, you'll have seven or eight people there to help you. I mean, it's really good service. People who are trying to make a living, trying to feed their kids, whether it's at the chicken store or the drug store or the mall or the hardware store or the groceries, there are families who are trying to make a living in a country where many don't. The current Honduran president in the last year has been cracking down on the drug cartels in huge ways either extraditing top drug lords back to the U.S. or, in numerous cases, sending special forces in black masks and just flat-out killing people. This has made a huge impact on hundreds of businesses that have shut down. Hundreds of businesses have closed in the last year. I go in places where there used to be a street that's busy, and now it's a street that's quiet leaving thousands of people unemployed, and it has trickled down to tens of thousands who are already living in the second poorest country behind Haiti. Former President Mel Zelaya has been capitalizing on this. Zelaya is a socialist and a disciple of Fidel Castro of Cuba and Hugo Chavez of Venezuela. They trained him, they raised him up, they have financed him. And Zelaya was removed from the office of president a number of years ago by the Honduran Supreme Court. Some of you might remember that my family was there during that time, during that coup, and we were under house curfew while the president, Zelaya, was removed because of the crimes that he had committed. Riots took place for days. Well, Zelaya wants back into power, and he continues to do anything he can to make the current government look bad. He continues to do anything he can to stir the people up because the elections are coming and he's hoping that he will be made president again. He wants to discredit the current government and if he can make the U.S. look bad in the meantime, that's even the better. Zelaya, with the backing of Venezuela, is one of the main people, in fact, the main person behind the caravan. 
he has financed hundreds of bad actors to begin in San Pedro Sula. And these paid protesters have capitalized on the dire situation of the country. I went to the place where the caravan began. They have promised and are promising mothers of children that if you will just take your kids to the U.S., they have to take them. All you have to do is show up. And mothers who are desperate for their kids to have something better are listening. They have capitalized on the thousands who have lost their jobs and today don't know how they're feeding their kids. There is no social services to help. The gang and the drug situation is so bad, they have promised safety to those whose families are in danger, and there are a lot of people who are in danger. And I have met numerous people who have been on this caravan and come home, or they have gone at different times. And there is one common denominator in all the years that I've been going. The common denominator is this. People who are trying desperately to get a job, and they hear there's work, so that they can Western Union home to feed their families. So are there bad actors in the caravan? Yes. Those that are financed by Zelaya, and of course the nature of a crowd also attracts bad apples too. Are there asylum seekers? Yes. There are very real and legitimate threats to families who have family members who have been swallowed up by the drug trade. Are they all asylum seekers? No. I hear news reports that uh, talk about how many men there are in the group. Well, of course that's the case. Because there are fathers and husbands who are saying to their families, it's too dangerous for you to go. This is not like this is new. This has been happening for years. Who say, I'll go. I'll take the risk. Because I've got to feed my family, and I've got to feed my kids. The vast majority of people are those who are in a desperate situation and have been promised unfairly something better. I've talked with them and I've thought about it through the years. If I did not have food to feed my three children and I had no prospects of getting it and I had no social service to help me, would I be caught up in the same desperate hope to feed my family? Most are innocent victims caught up in the promises and propaganda of Zelaya's people who want to cause problems for the government so that he can be reelected. I have watched, even last week, kids standing in the sewer trying to catch any kind of fish that might be there. Well, I don't think the answer for us is to open up the gates to all. Neither is the answer to demonize people who live in a level of desperation and fear that none of us in this room have ever known. Nor do I think the answer is like somebody wrote on Facebook on a Sandpoint site last week. I hope we shoot them all. I've loved the reports I've seen of Nazarene churches in Guatemala and Mexico who are feeding 900 people a day, and they're feeding them, and they don't have much more resources than those that they are feeding, but they're folks that are right there on their door, and they're living into the Old Testament word of not forgetting the alien 
and Jesus' words that say, what you do for the least of these, you've done for me. I guess, in some way, this does turn into a sermon. Why do we invest in places beyond ourselves? Why do we invest in places like Honduras? Because we are trying to see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven for all people. The words of my dad continue to ring in my mind for those who have been given much. There is much expected. So I started my trip teaching a two-day class at the teaching center in church history. These are classes that pastors have to take in order to, to uh, graduate, to be ordained, and, and yet it takes a long time because there are a few teachers who come through. And so uh, my area this last uh, week was the exciting church history from the Reformation uh, of, uh, with Martin Luther up until the present day. What's cool about it is, is because there aren't a lot of teachers, which is a downside, I get to see some of the same students over and over again, and you build relationships. And you also get to see people who are continuing being called into the ministry, new students that are there. There was a new student this time. Uh, I met him. His job, which I thought was really interesting, um, is he fishes for alligators. And, and do you know how he does this? It's not like swamp people uh, on TV. He jumps in the water, puts his arms around them, wrestles the alligator, and then kills it. I gave him a really good grade. Um, God's calling all kinds of people to ministry. I'm also working in leadership development with Pastor Neftali, who's there on the screen. He pastors the church at the teaching center. He's been placed in charge over the six new churches, but he was there by himself for 25 years. And he's needing help to learn how to manage and learn how to build a team and learn how to lead. While it's safe at the teaching center, where a number of you have been, as we go into the cities where the churches have been planted, it becomes a little more dangerous because there are more hot spots between the current war of the government and the drug cartels. I went to teach in three churches out in the mountains. And in order to get to these churches, you have to drive over two hours one way, there two hours back, on roads that uh, would make our logging roads look like highways. 15 to 20 miles an hour, deep ruts, 4,000 foot uh, elevation, sheer drops, washed out roads. And to these three churches, we would travel each day and working on discipleship material. Churches that have been planted in the middle of nowhere, that have never had anybody come alongside with pastors who are, who are new to being pastors and new to being Christians, who need to understand what, is it, what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to... To, to grow in Christ. What does it mean? And, and we gave them tools. We put tools in their hands and discipleship material. And by the time we left those three churches, they not only had the material, we had divided them in small groups. We had leaders of those small groups. We began the work of them walking through that discipleship material together and them committing that when they finished after eight times meeting together, that they were going to then take that material to their neighbors and try to walk through basic Bible studies of what does it mean to follow Jesus, before we went into the mountains, our missionary Dana had a flat tire, which made me notice the rest of his tires, which were fairly bald, and we were going into the mountain driving. I said, you got a spare tire, right? And he says, well, yeah, but it's not as good as the tires we have. 
The first church we went to was Esquipulas del Norte. I taught there a couple of years ago. That's Pastor Donaldo in the, in the uh, picture there. And uh, uh, when I've taught there before, sometimes I've taught in the church. You'll see the church there. Sometimes I've taught in the school, one room, school room, when the church was busy with kids or something. And it was disheartening to learn that just a couple months before I had gotten there this time, that while the teacher was teaching in that same room that I'd been teaching, somebody walked in, shot and killed him in front of his students. He'd done something bad. Nobody disagreed. But there is no justice. There is no police out there. It is, it's mountain justice. And the kids had to witness that. We had about 35 folks that would attend our classes there come in the middle of the day to learn about discipleship. The second place we went to, the second church, was Miramar. We have to cross the river to get there. It had rained two days earlier, and we weren't really sure whether we could get across the river or not. Thankfully, on the day we went, the river was only at two feet. Here I captured it. Take a look. Well, here we go to cross the river. Maybe. Maybe. side. Good job. I figured we would probably die there. And, um, or those tires would just die right there. And there's no cell service. And that's where you would find me is in the river. I first met Pastor Carla uh, there in the picture um, when I taught her a couple years ago when she began the ministerial classes. She is a sharp young woman in her 20s in this jungle area. I mean, I'm talking the middle of nowhere, she has built a church. She became a Christian and, and, and moved into that, into that little area and started a church, this gal in her 20s, doing incredibly good work. Now, when she started this church, she, uh, she knew that, that before a building, the most important thing that a church in Honduras needs is a very loud sound system. And so that's what she had her people. They, they worked overtime. They worked in their spare time picking coffee beans, selling the coffee, and they bought $1,500 for this sound system. Now they could have a church. Well, since then, um, a work and witness team has built this building that you see there. And out of the jungle, 70 people came to our classes to hear what does it mean to be a disciple. And they're following after Pastor Carla. The third mountain church we went to is at Ketterzol, and I'd been there as well, but the last time I was there, it was a wood structure. The church has now been able to build a building absolutely, again, in the middle of, of nowhere. We almost didn't go, because two weeks earlier, the pastor was sitting there next to his uh, sister-in-law when someone drove up and shot and killed her. Her husband had been the mayor, and apparently there was some bad blood they called the authorities. They called the police in the nearest town. The police said, uh, well, thanks for the report, but that's really too far for us to investigate. And so nothing happens. We had about 40 people, you can see there, who attended our classes in discipleship. Class went a little long on the last day there, and the pastor suggested it would probably be safer if we got going. It was a little darker than we wanted it to be, and we had two hours to go but we didn't want to drive out in the dark. That was his concern, concern for our safety or concern to be ambushed. And in fact, the, uh, the, the day before, uh, actually, we'd been driving out in the dark and found a body laying in the road. And you don't know if they're passed out or they're dead. 
but what you do know is you're not going to stop. And so we got away a little late, and we were driving the two hours, most all of it, in the dark. Um, and I am, uh, it, was a t it was a little bit of a tense moment uh, as I thought about, what if those tires uh, go flat? Triple A, I am sure, does not come out here, even though I have my card with me. We made it back, but the next morning, we looked outside and we had a flat tire. The Lord had kept us. While the tire was being fixed, I called Jamie and she said, we, we need to get them some new tires. I said, why didn't you suggest that three days ago before we ever went to the mountains? We'd received a much appreciated gift of $300 for Pastor's Appreciation Month from you, the church, and uh, I sent an email to two or three other families and said, we'd like to put our $300 in. Would you match it? The bill's going to be 1000 to $1,200. And I got an immediate email back from one of our families that said, we'd like to pay for the whole thing. Just go put tires on the car. And so um, I think we have a picture there. Yep, there are the tires. New tires on the car. Ten ply, for those of you who care. Um, the next few days, I taught in La Confianza, uh, where some of you have been. I was back teaching church history again. And again, we didn't almost go because just two days before, two military men had been killed raiding a nearby mine that was supposed to be shipping ore, but instead it had been shipping drugs. Then back to Laseba to the teaching center where we invited all the pastors and their leadership teams to come together where we were going to talk about what does it mean to be a team? What does it mean to be a people who work together? What are the dysfunctions of a team? How can you function well together? And spent the time with them working through that. We then traveled four hours back to San Pedro Sula and participated in the 32nd anniversary of the Kalan Church of the Nazarene. Kalan is the village where the school is, where we've invested, where we have over 300 students and, and a number of you sponsor kids. Um, and our Christmas Eve offering goes to those kids' sponsors. And um, the village of Kalan, where this is located, is now, uh, wasn't, didn't used to be, it is now 100% controlled by the gang MS-13. However, they believe in the work that the church and the school does, and so they protect those who are a part of that. I told Jamie that and told my wife, don't worry. Um, they recognize the missionary's car when we go into the village. They'll be fine. She said, yeah, but do they recognize the new tires? That's what I'm worried about. <laughs> Lots of kids sang that night as part of the celebration. I thought I'd just share 20 seconds of one of them with you. Twenty seconds of staring at her. We had a great night celebrating what God is doing there. When we first started going to that school, um, Ten years ago, that was all concrete, and it's just amazing to see how the work has continued and kids are growing. And... But it reminded me how important our sponsorship of these kids are, especially now that the gang is in control of the village. For the only way they will be able to escape their culture. 
to get out of what it is to live in that village day in and day out is an education. And an education that will give them opportunities to step outside of that village. But not just an education, a Christ-centered education that will continue to pour into the mission of the church and perhaps even the community that they're a part of. Our Christmas tree, giving tree, that we put in the foyer will be up in a few weeks, and there'll be tags on those trees for $25. That's what it takes to sponsor a child for one month to go to school, $300 a year. And I would encourage you to make that part of your Christmas budget. I wish you could have met these three kids. I wish you could have met the people I met. They love Jesus. They love the church. They love their country. But they need help. And I hear my dad's words. To whom much is given, much is required. Thanks for giving me a chance to continue to invest in the kingdom of God coming in Honduras. The kingdom of God coming to the world as it is in heaven. For that really is all of our call. That's the call of our life. That's the call of of Christ's commission. Go into the world. That means right across the street, and that means all the way around the globe, and one doesn't minimize the other. The Great Commission says, don't just go to places that are comfortable or go to places that are easy. It says, go right where you live, but also go outside of where you live. Day in and day out, we're a people who are reminded that we are a people of a mission. We're a mission to live out the hope that is within us so that others might have that same hope. We're a mission to see all of God's children in the same way. We're on a mission to say that this Christ of Christmas, this baby we celebrate, will redeem the world. And we're on a mission to partner with him across the street or around the globe. Let's continue to remember that to whom much is given, much is required until all God's children find their way home. Would you stand?